Welcome to Radio KBPV, Tales of Kootenay Brown Pioneer Village, a podcast about the history of southwestern Alberta, presented by Kootenay Brown Pioneer Village of Pincher Creek, a museum complex that documents the stories of Western Canada's agricultural settlement through the preservation of local buildings and artifacts among a six-acre park. Pincher Creek is a town of 3,700 souls in a vast rural trading area of some 3,000 rural dwellers. A vibrant region of rolling prairie, foothills, the Rocky Mountains, the Pecani First Nation, Waterton Lakes National Park, the Crow's Nest Pass, and the Upper River Watershed of the South Saskatchewan River Basin. Join us in this podcast where we present walking tours of our buildings and hear the stories of the farmers, townsmen, cowboys, mounties, pioneer women, politicians, chroniclers, miners, railroaders, and so many other significant histories of this particular corner of Canada. Hello and welcome back to Radio KBPV. This is Ranger Gord Tolton from Kootenay Brown Pioneer Village. And today we're going to go all over the map on a country schools and churches historical driving tour. This was an actual tour that we did uh, this summer beginning at the museum in Pincher Creek. And we literally went all over the map of uh, southwestern Alberta, at least uh, from the Pincher Creek South area. And we visited the sites of several uh, historic and abandoned country, rural country school sites and also some uh, church sites as well. And uh, it's just very, very fortunate that we still have the remains of many of these buildings. Uh, some, like the Fishburn school at uh, the village and the Sears school have been salvaged and are in use today and repurposed for, as museum buildings. Some just haven't been that lucky and you just can't save everything. Um, fortunately, the, uh, the people of Pincher Creek um, and the area recognize the, uh, the importance of these sites and they do try their best to keep them up and uh, you know to try to keep the sites safe from prairie fires and intrusions and such. And in, uh, and in some cases, such as the Fishburn United Church and the St. Henry's United Church, they are still functioning buildings and where events and things like that are still handled. So obviously there's a lot of local pride in these buildings. And uh, as the Museum for Southwestern Alberta, Kootenay Brown Pioneer Village is tasked with keeping these memories and such alive. Uh, so we do this through things like the, uh, historical driving tour. Now keep in mind, some of these buildings, uh, are over a century old. Some of these sites and the memories are well in excess of a century old. And in the case of Fishburn, that site, for example, started in 1894, but some of them have, have long histories. For example, the second Fishburn site didn't close until 1963. That makes me feel old because that's the year I was born. Uh, but it still is a massive to think about uh, the generations that grew up in these areas, used these schools, uh, sometimes also in later on years repurposed as community halls, are buried, uh, their ancestors are buried in some of the cemeteries in the area. 
And as we said, uh, some of the churches are still functioning. So we started this tour on Saturday, July 25th in the afternoon, and we started it at the museum in Pincher Creek where we gathered. We uh, visited uh, a very few of the buildings, uh, such as the Fishburn that had come from that area and uh, the Kootenai detachment of the Northwest Mounted Police since we were going to be going by those sites so people got to see what the uh, what what the re salvage buildings looks like before we head out into the country and see where they actually came from uh, it was just a gorgeous afternoon the sort of a day that uh, a movie cinematographer would just kill for uh, the light was gorgeous and for once uh, not a bit of wind we were on some pavement some gravel and we did this as a caravan tour, uh, led by Farley as as the historian and myself, uh, sort of I guess as the uh, as the chuck wagon driver, and uh, just went out in personal vehicles. Normally we would do this kind of a tour uh, with a bus, which would be nice. We could make it all self-contained and do a commentary along the way. Uh, this year. We have our, our under the pandemic restrictions, as is everything else in society and across the world. So uh, in adherence to that, we just uh, decided to do a, a separate vehicles uh, sort of an arrangement. We, Other than that, we kept to all the distances. We had masks, kept our social distancing while on sites, and wound up our day at the St. Henry's Catholic Church on the magnificent hill that overlooks uh, the Drywood Creek and Yarrow Creek, rather, and uh, the old Shell gas plant areas and the Gulf gas plant areas. And just an absolute gorgeous vista of the, of the mountains from Chief Mountain right up to the Livingston Range, the Porcupine Hills, and uh, if you squint, you can even see the Milk River Ridge. So... It, it was just sort of a site that, uh, um, you know, you can make postcards from. So along the way, uh, to to fill in the site, since we weren't going to be together, uh, Farley was good enough to, uh, to create an all-over-the-map uh, driving tour package that people could read along or else take home and read along later. Along the way, I will be referring to Farley's manuscript here uh, to give you some of the idea of some of the trails that we were on along the way and the, uh, the site as well. And of course, that will be interrupted by the intermittent uh, commentary that Farley did himself live on on site, which we recorded with a portable audio recorder. Now, along the way, you always get uh, questions and comments and answers from along the crowd. Um, I tried to do my best to try to capture some of that audio, but um, I realized that we were outside, and uh, with the odd breeze that was probably blowing, I probably didn't catch that or uh, was able to uh, run over there like the roving reporter with my microphone to catch what the people were saying. So... Uh, just keep that in mind 
Uh, if you hear intermittent spaces, I will try to pick up the audio. And if we can't uh, pick that up, I'll either cut that out or or try to do an, I uh, guess, a, a, an over-the-top commentary on what that, uh, that speaker was saying, if I can remember. At any rate, without further ado, let's uh, get in our vehicles and drive all over the map. We begin our tour at Kootenay Brown Pioneer Village. It's the museum currently operated by the Pincher Creek and District Historical Society that was established in September 1966. The museum is on the property where several old historical buildings were located and formerly was the site of the old skating and curling rinks that were operated by Jim Saunders, utilizing water flooded from the creek. This was in the 1920s, 30s, and early 1940s. Now the site of Pioneer Place, the top of the hill, which is the Tourist Information Center, was originally the Hinton Auto Court, established in the early 1900s. An auto court was an earlier name for a hotel. Uh, the Hinton family's bungalow house was located at the front and rental cabins were off to the east. Later, it became a trailer court uh, just prior to be the construction of Pioneer Place in the year 2000. Northeast end, the site of the community gardens is the site of the former, former site rather, of the Sorge trailer court that was established in 1958 and may have been an auto court that was actually established by a Pincher Creek Northwest Mounted Police veteran, Mr. William Reed, in the 1920s. So welcome to the Fishburn School here at the Kootenay Brown Pioneer Village. It's school number 311, and it was one of 39 country schools to be established in, uh, 39 schools to be established in the Pincher Creek area. This one was in 1894, and it was the very first country school outside of Pincher Creek to be established uh, locally. It had its own school board and its own teachers. Uh, the first teacher was Mr. Trimble, who had connections. He was, came from a pioneer family from Lethbridge, and his grandson now lives out by Beaver Mines. And so they uh, had the school. Uh, the school was built in 1894. The porch was added in 1904, and then a second porch in the 1940s, and uh, it was the, actually has the, between that school and the one that they built to replace it in 1948, had the longest education history of any of the country schools in uh, the Pincher Creek area. Not only was it the first, but it had the longest. School is still taught there in 1963, so that's almost 70 years worth of history that uh, they had, 70 years of students, so it's quite, quite impressive. The school is also the, uh, community center and so it's used uh, for as a community hall and uh, even when this during the school day time period when uh, the new school was built in 1945 uh, 48 it uh, reverted to a hall full-time and back in the early days it was also used for church services and uh, the United Church out there the Presbyterian Church out there was built in 1904 so for the first 10 years it was used very extensively for church services as well. And so it was a classic school with uh, eight to nine grades in it, one teachers, two or three uh, students in each grade, sometimes four, depending on the population. So they ended up with a, 
a, a full class of 24 students in there. And now we can have a quick peek, a peek in there and uh, see what the school looked like inside back in the old days as well. As we leave the village on our tour, we're going to cross Bridge Avenue, named obviously for the bridge crossing the Pincher Creek, but now known today as Beverly McLaughlin Drive. Since 2001, named for the retired Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of Canada. Originally, this Bridge Avenue uh, dated as early as 1898 when a steam engine crashed through the wo uh, wooden bridge in 1906 that required the building of a new bridge. And there have been at least four built in succession over the crossing um, as the times have become current. This is also the originally the site of Highway Number Six coming from Highway Number Three, that connected the town directly uh, on the road to Waterton, and uh, through a disconnected uh, lot, it traveled uh, south on East Avenue and before finally connecting with what the current route of Highway Number 6 is, about some seven miles south of town. The dwellings on Bridge Avenue represent some of the, one of the oldest residential districts in Pincher Creek, with homes dating uh, to the late 1890s and early 1900s. Uh, several noted for their wide sweeping front yards when, uh, at a time when you needed barns, a milk cow or two, and living back in town was uh, just a little slightly similar to living in the country. We will pass by the Jackson Brothers Hardware Store at Main and Bridge, and the, uh, the site of Morgan's Garage, Montgomery and Hart's Garage, and of course these buildings have all been uh, uh, replaced over the years in succession by the Rexall site, the, uh, the former Treasury Branch, and by the current 7-Eleven and uh, also the uh, Hudson's, the, sorry, the provincial building that is formerly the site of the Hudson's Bay building. Uh, as we passed out on Main Street towards the uh, current number six highway, we'll pass by uh, St. John's Church of England. It was established in 1884, uh, the oldest uh, Anglican church still in use in all of Alberta and past the, uh, the complex of the, uh, the sporting complexes, uh, curling rinks, hockey rinks, library and such, that was the site of the Northwest Mounted Police Horse Ranch. Impetus for the establishment of the town in Pincher Creek. Uh, by 1901, there were 300 people living in that town, in the town. Uh, as we cross uh, through the industrial section, we'll cross Kettles Creek, named after Pincher Creek pioneers Charles and Elizabeth Kettles. Uh, Charles being one of the original Mounties establishing the town and later operating on a ranch on the South Hill, west of what would become St. Michael's School. As we turn south, we'll see to the uh, Sears Hill in the mountains to the southwest named after pioneers Dominique and Marion Sear, who arrived in the Pincher Creek area in 1904 to establish their ranch. And we see mountains in the distance, Corner Mountain, uh, Victoria Peak, and Castle Mountain. Now, as we travel the brief distance to Fishbird, we're going to go through 
two other school districts. And this gives you an idea of the, uh, the proximity of these schools towards each other, whereas they were basically one school per township. So roughly uh, in every six by six square mile of land, you would have one school. So we, uh, in the area of Pincher Creek where you had 39, um, that's a very close grouping of schools and that speaks to the large amount of people that uh, used to live on these districts. Uh, as opposed to today with modern farm machinery, you have a lot less farmers farming more land. So therefore schools were consolidated over time and uh, thus the old schools abandoned. Now, the first we come to is the Chipman Creek School, um, which was opened in June of 1903, built by Lewis, Stuck, Lewis and Dick Stuckey, uh, with a barn built uh, close by to shelter the many horses the children rode to school. So no buses, you rode your horse. Uh, there were many teachers over the years, uh, by the names of, we'll just give the last names, uh, Blackburn, Lamb, Cox, Thomas, Norton, Huddleston, Smith, Shemp, Collins, McRae, Hillier, and Ryan. And the, among the families sent to the schools uh, were Stuckey's, Kylo's, Webb's, Davidoff's, Dace, Bodell, Sears, Brainiff's, Fournier, Cox, Peltier, Finders, Belisle, LaBelle, Terriot, Laternbull, Quinlan, Simpson, Hagel, Conroe, Sullivan, Rootsatz, Kunkel, Smith, Brown, Blaine, Hochstein, Lankin, Mongeon, Pearson, DeGroote, and Audie. So that's a fairly diverse uh, gathering of, of settlers that you see there. Um, just judging from the names, I see people are French-Canadian, Ancestry, uh, German, Dutch, and, of, and Anglo, and even uh, one Dukabor family. So that's a, that's a, that's a fairly diverse, uh, due to the close proximity of Pincher Creek, Chipman Creek, as I said, was one of the first to close in the area with the students being bused to town, uh, start beginning in the early 1940s. And uh, their district becoming part of what is now the Central School. Uh, the school was no longer part of the division. Uh, the barn was purchased by Marcel Hochstein and moved to his farm, where it's still used by Lester and Doris Hochstein today. The Lewis Stuckey family was the foundation for the school, and the teachers spent many hours visiting their home, and the Stuckey children always lit the furnace and did janitorial work for the Chipman Creek School. Fred said the first $5 bill he ever saw was earned by doing the janitorial work at the Chipman School. Quite a responsibility for a young boy. As we turn south on the 507, we pass by an existing school building that built in 1926 on the southeast quarter of Section 8, Township 8, Range 28, west of the 4th. This is the Halifax School, built on uh, land owned by Mr. Sweeney that later became the property of Jake and Elizabeth Jansen. Uh, the trees that were originally planted out there on the inside of the schoolyard as a windbreak did provide a lot of entertainment over the years because the wind raised havoc with the snow drifting into the trees. And many an igloo was built into the snow by many of the school children. 
And many snow battles, snowball battles were fought from behind those forts that were built on the banks of that. Uh, the school itself was one big room with an entry porch on each side. Uh, drinking water was provided by Frank Packham. In between the two cloakrooms, the boys and girls cloakroom, was the big old stove that someone had to look for to be comfortable every day. And a janitor uh, looking after the fire paid a, a willing person $5 a month. Coal and wood were housed in the coal shed out behind the school as fuel. The first teacher was Miss Keith in 1926 who boarded with the Audie family southwest of the school. And by the way, that Audie house is preserved today in Kootenay Brown Pioneer Village as our blacksmith shop. Uh, we later saw Margaret Newton as teacher and Marion Fraser took over in the 1933 and Margaret Newton came back in 1935. 1936 we had Rose Blair and Margaret Link finished their teaching the rest of the school year. During the 10 year period of Halifax, uh, grades 1 to 10 inclusive were available. Most schools were usually 1 to 8, but I guess Halifax was a little unusual. Uh, students attended included Hazel and Olive Anderson, Jim Audie, Andy Kunkel, the Honeyman family, Scott Turnbull, Norma Mansfield, Bill and Olive Johnson, uh, Heldon and Bizelski, and the Sweeney and Braniff families, and, and uh, Maggie Harris, a Japanese girl who worked uh, at the Simpson farm for Mrs. Simpson and Homer. As grade 10 was available at Halifax and not at Spring Ridge School, Les Duffield attended for one year to get his grade 10. Through the 1930s, teachers included Winnie Porter, Pearl Fisher, Elsie McFarland, Rita Sear, Jean Thomas, Mary Fidanto, Joan Weir, Lauren Bunyan, and Mary Bobbin. Now at this point, uh, grades one to eight were only available and uh, the children had to go to town school for grades nine through 12. So amongst the children we've had attended in those areas, years were the Peltiers, Jansons, Potikers, Brudigan, Goodwins, Turnbulls, Packhams, Andersons, Turnbulls, and Bolts. Halifax School also boasted a very entertaining horse barn. Get all the horses out pasturing in the yard and you were challenged to swing in the rafters, and more daring yet, to swing in the rafters with the horses still tied in their stalls. In badder, bad, better weather, recess and noon hours often held a battle between cops and robbers. Needless to say, this was all, did not go over well with the teacher and also helped spoil a many, many a good saddle horse. Uh, in wartime, the children and local area ladies uh, sat in knitted squares for Afghans uh, to, with wool provided by the Red Cross uh, for blankets to be sent overseas. Uh, pie socials and box socials raised money to put on Christmas concerts and Halloween parties to raise money for the Red Cross. And of course Christmas time uh, in a team or a sleigh we always had a visit with Santa Claus. In 1954, a teacher was moved in and a well was drilled for the school. And Mrs. Jacobs and, uh, took up residence. Uh, the Jacobs were from England and were part of a group of teachers that came to the Pincher Creek area in those post-war years. In 1957, Miss Palabrodi taught and lived in the teacherage and followed by Miss Rutledge as late as 1959. And eventually the school 
closed down in 1960 and the school buses appeared uh, to take the local children to town and the saddle horses were retired. The fences have since been taken down and the teacherage and barn sold and moved away and the Halifax School became the Halifax Community Hall. I didn't start running with my vans the other day, so we're okay. So we're here at the original site of the Fishburn School. And we've caravanned out from Pincher Creek on a very lovely Saturday afternoon with just a hint of Pincher Creek wind. Just a hint, just enough to make the flags blow. Absolutely gorgeous summer day. This is the, the sort of thing that you think of Alberta and this is what you think of. So anybody get lost? If you got lost, put up your hand if you're not here. Okay, it worked. Everybody's here. Farley's just bringing out a binder of uh, pictures of this, uh, this site. I believe it's used as a community hall. On how many occasions, I do not know. Well, as soon as we get up here, Farley will give his diatribe. And thanks, everybody, for social distancing. It's very much easier out here than in the museum. So this is the original site of Fishburn, where the school that we were in earlier that has now moved to the village. And this is the second school, and he'll give you the whole history. And, of course, uh, where we slowed down uh, was the uh, Halifax School. Slowed down was the Halifax Flat School, and it operated until from 1926 to 1960. And the place across the road there, uh, in the trees where the Packhams lived, that's where the teachers all boarded at that point. I got it. Okay. Yeah. So welcome to Fishburn. This is the center of the not only the school but the uh, Fishburn uh, settlement as well. Uh, the building that's behind uh, us, in front of you, behind me is uh, the second school that was built in 1948 and the original school that we have down at the museum and that's what's on the front of your uh, program was located right over here so right by the uh, road is where that picture was taken and that picture was taken in 1973 shortly before it was moved to the to the museum so this is uh, the second school here quite often a lot of the country schools saw two uh, uh, schools in succession being used uh, either because uh, the original one wore out or because the original one burnt down. In this case they just wanted a more modern modern school. And the uh, little house behind the bushes there, that's the teacherage that they used to, uh, for, uh, for the uh, uh, te uh, teachers here. So originally they boarded at uh, some of the local ranches and farms but in this case, they, uh, they uh, had a teacher here in the 1940s and 1950s and early 1960s. Uh, the uh, teacher is now used as a bed and breakfast. Uh, the McGlynns who live over there, uh, Leonard McGlynn and his late wife Eileen, uh, used it as a, uh, a bed and breakfast and so forth. So that's what that's been used for. Well, uh, the uh, school that we have here now is still used as the community hall. So it's uh, there for Christmas functions and family reunions and different things like that. And it's uh, used quite extensively. Fishburn is one of the oldest, it's probably the oldest uh, rural district uh, east of Pincher Creek. It dates back to the early 1890s when there was a, a number of uh, homesteaders that moved into this area. Uh, the Fish family, Demsdales, Metzlers, uh, Whitcoffs, uh, different ones like that. Those are just a few of them. And uh, they came in here in the 18, 
1880s and 1890s and established a series of homesteads here. So that's what we were talking about a little bit earlier is the quarter section you could apply for for uh, land and you could get a, a homestead. Can everybody hear Farley? Because his loudspeaker is over there. Oh, okay. I didn't <laughs> think far enough ahead. <laughs> am, am I loud enough? So uh, the uh, A.W. Uh, the, uh, Arthur Walter home, uh, Fish Homestead and Margaret's was where uh, over there where uh, McGlynn's live. And uh, 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 they established that place in, uh, in the 1890s. Arthur W. Fish lived here for about 15 or 20 years, but only, but he was considered a leader in the community. And that's why the Fishburn area is named after him. And so the combination of the name, surname Fish and the Scottish word for creek, which is burn. Barren. Barren. And this is the little creek along here. It's called the Dry Fork to the Waterton River, to the Kootenai River. And uh, that was uh, how it was named. Uh, Mr. Fish uh, originally worked uh, for the Northwest Mounted Police on some of their horse ranch operations as a cowboy and then uh, set up his homestead here. He was also a founding member of the, uh, on the school board here at Fishburn as well. So there was a number of different people that uh, came together to start the Fishburn community. Uh, Marcellus was another, another early name. Uh, John Plummer Marcellus was the second generation, uh, J.P. Marcellus, and he actually served as the first member of the legislature for Pincher Creek, and he came from, from this area, and he just homesteaded a little bit further to the, to the north here. One of the places that we drove by but didn't really get a chance to see was Rural Lake, and that was named after a retired constable with the Northwest Mounted Police, Achilles Rulo, who served at Fort McLeod and then established a homestead there as well. And uh, uh, he lived to the 1936 time period and uh, established a homestead there. Uh, this speaks to the importance of having a veterans association around here because uh, with the Mounties, because they were able to identify that Rillo didn't have a family of his own, and they were able to identify that he was actually buried at Fairview Cemetery and actually got a, a little grave headstone encrypted for him, and they had the dedication ceremonies for him there, him there about eight or ten years ago, just before Christmas one year. So there's lots of early people like that. There's the Jenkins family. That was at the other corner there. That's where Frank Jenkins lives. And uh, uh, there's a lot of early pioneer families that uh, lived in this area. It actually became a little community in and of itself here. They had a general store here. They had a blacksmith shop. The blacksmith shop was run by Dick Whitkoff, who was Ken Whitkoff's grandfather. And they also had a post office here. And the post office was in existence until 1942. It had uh, twice weekly uh, mail service from Pincher Creek and Fort McLeod. So they had a real thriving uh, community here. The original church, like I said, the original school, like I said, was uh, used as the uh, um, Methodist and Presbyterian services. They also had Church of England services out here and so forth. So it was really a, this neck of the woods was really a, interdenominational area. There's the Spring Ridge Mennonite Church that was started in 1927. That's further east and then, uh, uh, of course, St. Henry's. And one of the stories that Kurt Frozy told me, Kurt Frozy was on the board of directors at the museum back when I, I came back, and he said the 
camaraderie among the three churches or four churches in this area is so great that you could feel equally at home in any of the churches in this area. So that uh, speaks of the, of the pioneer spirit uh, uh, that they had here. So one of the interesting things from my own background is the very last teacher at this school was a lady by the name of Mrs. Waltbauer, who I believe taught down at the New Yarrow School as well. And she taught here in the, in the early 1960s. When I came taught along a few years later at Canyon School, she was my grade one teacher at Canyon. So it sort of shows what the close connections are between growing up in town and even in the countryside back then and so forth. So. The question was asked, Farley, well, as what the usage of this building is now. Uh, as the community hall. So they use it to, uh, regularly for Christmas events, uh, plays, get family get-togethers get and things like that. So, so it's used, used on a regular basis for, for, the, for that purposes and all that. So. Uh, I've got a couple of photo albums out here that people are welcome to have a gander around us. They have a little tour or looking around on your own and things like that. The, these are the photo albums that Reg Beer put together uh, of the early schools uh, teachers and some of the classes that were here at uh, at Fishburn from from the early days in the 1890s up to the uh, to the 1950s and 1960s. So you're welcome to have a gander at the at the uh, at the photo albums as well. So after a peek around the Fishburn Town site and a look inside the uh, second Fishburn School, which is now the uh, Fishburn Community Hall, used regularly, the tour piled back into its vehicles for a brief trip uh, less than two miles across Fishburn Creek to the site of the Fishburn United Church and Cemetery, and we pick up from there. So now we're just a mile or two uh, from where we were at the Fishburn Community Hall. This is the site of Fishburn United Church and the cemetery. It's uh, on a separate site, and uh, everybody's just gathering in here. It's just a beautiful little church on a knoll here, and we've crossed the, the Fishburn to get here. And uh, we can, the Rocky Mountains are spectacularly in sight. We can see everything from Chief Mountain right through up to the Livingstone Range and through the Porcupine Hills for as top as Spring Point. So it encompasses uh, thousands and thousands of square miles that we're looking at here. As we said earlier, beautiful summer day. We see canola yellow in bloom, grass very, very green. It's, we've only had a few days of heat here. so. I think that's everybody. Yeah. People out there. Sounds like Mr. Crawford's causing chaos in the back there. So, yeah. so we'd like to, uh, to welcome everybody on our tour to the Fishburne United Church. It's one of the old historical uh, points of interest in this community. Uh, the church was built in 1904 and uh, has been on the spot for almost 120 years now. And it has lots of history with it. Uh, they've, uh, it was originally a Presbyterian church. That's right, isn't it, Cecil? Presbyterian originally? It's part of yeah. yeah. It was a common Yeah, a common denomination. Yeah. And uh, there is uh, lots of other uh, church services held here, too. There's uh, uh, the cooperative of the Baptists and the Catholics and the Anglicans. And so there's lots of different church services here, but it was originally the Presbyterian Church, and then after 1925, it became the, Pre uh, the United Church here. Active 
excuse me, actively used over the over the years, and they still have Christmas services here today uh, in the modern era, and it's still very much a part of the community. In 1927, they had a manse that was built here. That's a place for the for the minister, which was just off to the east here, and it was used for many years, but just recently torn down. And one of the ministers, one of the student ministers that lived. Well, he didn't live in the manse because that was before the manse was here, but actually priest here was a fellow by the name, uh, whose last name was Tate. And he was a young minister, and this was in about 1908 or 1910. And Mr. Tate became a very good friend of Kootenay Brown, who was by then a senior in the community. And uh, Tate did a bunch of interviews with Kootenay Brown and put, came together a very thick book, even uh, thicker than the ones that Farley comes out with, of all the history around here and interviews with Kootenay Brown. So he got a biography recorded of, of Kootenay Brown because of, of William Tate. And some of Tate's um, descendants live, now live up at High River. So he was the minister here in the, in the early days. We also have the cemetery out here, which is uh, uh, still actively used uh, by the local people, and it's uh, really a center of the community. Well, you got to die to use it. Well, it's there for, uh, for everybody to have being respectful and all that. So, yes, you have to die to use it. But We've tried to put living people there, but the authorities were against it. <laughs> yeah. So we did our Talking Tombstones events here back in 2016, four years ago. And it was very much appreciated the Fishburn community let us do this event here. It's where we respectfully recall the contributions of the people who have passed on that are buried at the cemetery. And so it's an annual event. This year we're doing the, our Talking to Stone event at uh, the Lutheran Cemetery, which is out in the six miles south on the highway. So, and that's on August 22nd, so four weeks. Do you do one at the Pinter one? We have in the past, and we're probably going to go back to that one relatively soon because it's so big. Both of them are so big, the Pioneer one and the Fairview Cemetery, that we haven't had a chance to do all the pioneers, and we want to break into different themes like mounties or ranchers or, okay. or... It's been a while since we've done those ones, so there might be new people. Mm -hmm. <laughs> now, I'm going to put Cecil on the spot because I have a history question I'm not able to answer. The lake that's just off to the west here, do you know who, what that lake is named? Or? You can say that. Well, I got a loud voice. Uh, and there's an old house that was there for years. Yeah, the old Simpson house had just got tore down this summer. It was just west here, a half mile. Uh, you know, just off the top of my head, I forget the name of that lake. It's got a unique name. The people live north of the road, a half mile west. There's some trees there. Okay. But going back to what Farley was saying, the church was built in 1904, and it was a, a community effort by all the Protestants in the area. So the Methodist, Presbyterian, it was a community effort. You can imagine back then with uh, horse and buggy days, this was a meeting point in many ways, along with the school. And so it was a bustling community for many, many years. They built the manse in, I believe Farley said 1927, 28, just to the east here, a two-story building. And then 
the United Church of Canada, when it became a church in, 19, in the 1920s, they started sending student ministers out here every summer. So we'd have a student minister from around the 1st of May till the end of August. And back in the 1950s and 1960s, which I can remember, I hate to say that, but I can remember it well, okay. this point was one of the most sought after student uh, points in all of Canada. Mm -hmm. So it was well run and, and we had uh, services at, at Mar too, right at uh, Mar Lake, which I'm sure Sheila remembers. So it was a, it was a bustling uh, church back in the 50s and 60s until all the farmers retired and started moving to Pincher Creek. We had, as you can see, a choir would meet during the week and practice a tune for the Sunday service. We had a, a weekly services. We had a youth group and and of course an active board, an active group of trustees, and there was a meeting place. I remember when I was a kid, you never went anywhere. We, I went to school in Hill Spring, maybe you go to Pincher Creek twice a year, Lethbridge once a year. So Sunday service here was always a highlight of my week. We had a week's vacation school in the summer for the kids. The poor old church has fallen down about 30 years ago. We put these uh, rods in, and on the outside of the church is a big, long 20 or 24 foot, four by six, and we sucked the walls in because the church was just, the walls were falling out, and the roof was slate like, like this, and it was gonna fall down. But now it's, I hope it's here for many more years. Marcellus's from the Fishburn District. Uh, they were here earlier, of course. Uh, the Simpsons. I don't know if some of you remember Mabel and Faye Duffield. Wes and Dora Thomas still lived in the community. Uh, uh, Jim Taylor's mom and dad. James and Gladys. Uh, the Potker family, Dave Potker family. Bob and Shirley Thomas family. The McCrae's came when they never went to Mar. I'm, I'm missing all kinds of people. Who, who comes here now? You know, like when you have a, an event here? Well, it's, it's a community church now, so we encourage people from all denominations to come because we only hold about four services a year. Everybody lived on about a half section years ago, so this was a meeting place. But like I said, every, all the old farmers, the second generation farmers, retired in the, in the late 60s and early 70s, and they all moved to Pincher Creek, and all of a sudden we never had enough parishers to keep the church open. But we still have a board and a group of trustees, and hold four services a year. Oh, that's great. And so to answer your question, we just draw from all over the area. People even come out from Pincher Creek be, for our services because they're special. <laughs> <laughs> and we always have lunch after. Maybe they just come for the lunch. 
place that you're talking about, that's like Larry Simpson's grandparents or Larry Simpson that works for the Nature Conservancy? No. No, it's a different family, is it? Yeah. Okay. It'd be uh, the grandparents uh, of Helen Ames. Oh, okay, yes. Yeah, I know Helen. I know the time goes by really fast, so. Well, any more questions about the history of the church or anything like that? Can we, are we still going to have some time to go through the graveyard? Yeah, we can uh, have a few minutes to go through the cemetery and things like that. And uh, we'd like to thank Cecil and Michael for opening the church up for us and uh, making us feel at home here. So, so thank you very much, Deacon. Cool. cemetery uh, uh, at the church then we're heading our, our next stop is at the Utopia School which is two miles to the south and we turn right there and it's about three quarters of a mile further west uh, yes we're thinking in miles the, that's the historical measurements and so when we go further down there's a little bit of a coulee down there and as you ride up on on the other side of the coulee you have to see the the Utopia School there We'll be parking on, on the shoulder of the road. Uh, it's not a highly used road, but we've got to be on the shoulder. We can't actually drive into the, into the schoolyard itself. So, so that's our, our next stop after we tour, finish tuning around here. So. Okay, you're on your own. <laughs> well, after a nice walkabout around the Fishburn Cemetery, we back into the caravan and we drove to the south to the site of the old Utopia School. Now, Utopia, uh, unlike the other schools uh, that have been refitted as community halls, isn't quite as fortunate. It's, uh, it's still there, but the paint has long since faded and the roof is caved in. But we did get off to the side of the road and walk into the site. I will say most of us walked into the site. Um, this podcaster did not because uh, it was right full of full bloom brome grass and other flowering plants that would have choked me and ended my day very, very quickly. So the rest of the group that is not so unfortunately afflicted did walk into the site and unfortunately I didn't have the presence of mind to hand Farley the, the recording device. So I'll just briefly touch on some of the, uh, the points. Utopia School was built uh, in 1903 on the northeast quarter of Section 23, Township 4, Range 29, west of the 4th, on land belonging to Jim Gilruth. So it's not normally uh, land, uh, school grant land uh, property. After much discussion and dissension, the school was built about halfway between east and west uh, locations on the land, 
under a board of four trustees of local farmers. As well as schools, there was two outhouses with a coal shed in between and a barn. And a cistern was built under the porch for a water supply and a waterberry stove surrounded by a tin jacket graced the southeast corner of the schoolroom. So there's not a lot of information up until 1920 on the Utopia School. However, a lady by the name of Gladys McCrae Taylor remembers that spelling matches and rapid circulate, rapid calculation contests were highlights of the 1920s and Utopia competed with students at the Robert Kerr School as well as the Fishburn, Chipman, and uh, Utopia, all in uh, inter-school spelling matches. And Miss McCrae was delighted to accept that challenge as she had five girls who were whizzes at spelling. And the match was actually held at the Ward House in Fishburn. So Utopia was victorious, but the final contestants were not the girls, but were Ted Stenson and Lawrence Bonnerts. She also remembers a math contest with the Mars School, which we also will be driving by later on. Now Rose Stetson Blackburn recalls one day Earl Miller and another boy on their way home decided to build a bonfire. Well, the wind was blowing and the fire got away on them. Fortunately, it was near a spring, which was closer than the school, and uh, the local farmers got together, quickly assembled and put out the fire. The following morning, as you can imagine, Earl and the other boy were asked to remain at recess and Miss McFarland strapped both of them. And they probably got a very similar punishment at home. And if you don't know what strapping is, then you probably haven't never gone to a one-room schoolhouse. It is actual corporal punishment, which is banned by law today. But as a historian who does tours and programs at the Fishburn School in Pincher Creek, I can tell you that every kid, no matter what age, when you bring out the belt to show them, they all know what it's for. But of course, there were happy times. There were beautiful decorations that were drawn by the teachers for the tops of the blackboards as a border with the alphabets in small and capital letters. And for example, the pictures were tulips in the spring, autumn leaves in the fall, and I suppose uh, a Christmas theme was also used at that time of the year as well. Two of the teachers in the 20s resided outside of the district in their own homes. Mrs. Cassidy drove a one-horse cart 10 miles every day from the Spring Ridge District to the Utopia School. Mrs. McCray Taylor rode from her home in the Robert Kerr District each day. Now, during the Depression era of the 1930s, pupils came to school dressed in homemade clothes or hand-me-downs from their brother, older brothers and sisters. Boys and girls both wore long flannel underwear and lace-up boots, while girls wore long brown stockings pulled over their underwear legs. Lunches were carried in syrup pails or, flo or flower bags. Now, sports was big in the Utopia District, softball, uh, later, an outdoor basketball court was built, and competition between the, the various school districts was, uh, so winning participants didn't get medals, they got ribbons, and there was no participation. They, you had to win something. Red ribbon for first, blue for second, and white for third. And the sports days were always community days for visiting na neighbors and uh, picnics as well. For winter sports, it consisted, as we've talked about, of building snow forts 
and softball, snowball fights, football uh, as well. Accounts talks of a ping pong table being built and Christmas concerts were big. So these are the normal activities you associate with the one-room schoolhouses. Now, 1939 came um, with the autumn of 1939, after September 1st, came the start of the Second World War. Canada was involved. And so under wartime restrictions, the Pincher Creek School Board ordered all the Christmas concert practices, uh, evening concerts, to be banned. Now, the Utopia District rebelled against this and called a meeting and wrote letters informing the, the school board and the Department of Education that this was not satisfactory. And a letter was received in January of 1940 acceding to their wishes, and thus the concerts carried on as usual. And uh, as I said, this was due to wartime restrictions um, that prevented people from gathering, um, having very many large gatherings in one places. Now, school inspectors put the fear of God in the teachers, who in turn passed it on to the students and their best be on their best behavior. Their jobs depended on a satisfactory report. Dave Halton remembers one day when he went to school and found skunks under the school. A member of the board came along and says, you can't let the kids get into the school, let's go fishing. When he got back, the inspector, Mr. Bremner, had come to call. Janitoring of the school was done by the students, and they were paid for it. Field trips were few, but and uh, second in excitement to the Christmas concert. But by the 1930s, uh, we had vehicles, and the method of transportation for the field trips was usually the back of a three-ton truck, not a bus. And one well-remembered trick took place in 1937 when Ted Tucker loaded up all the kids into the back of his truck to see the movie Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs in Pincher Creek. Other field tricks, including the going off to see the movie The Hunchback of Notre Dame, trip to a local coal mine, an underground tour of it, and nature walks and a ride to uh, see the Waterton River Valley. So from the year 1939, rural schools were administered from a central office in Pincher Creek. Difficulties in hiring teachers for schools and uh, led to consolidation of the school districts and the Utopia School was closed in 1950 and the students were then bused across the Waterton River to Hill Spring. 30 years later in 1979, pardon me, 40 years later in 1979, 150 former teachers and pupils gathered at the Pincher Creek Community Hall for a reunion of the Utopia School. And they came from as far away as Ottawa and Huntsville, Ontario and Vancouver and many other points. So that's the Utopia School and now it'll be on to the St. Henry's Church. All right. So welcome to St. Henry's Church, everybody. Uh, this is uh, one of our stops on our Saturday tour, and welcome here. Uh, the church, St. Henry's Church, was built in 1907 on top of this uh, uh, great hill with a fantastic view and uh, 360 degrees and, uh, and views up to the heavens so somebody can watch us and all that. And so it's uh, been a very active church over the years. It's a, a Catholic church and very well used and still used for occasional services today and all that. So it's, uh, it's really quite active and uh, 
Um, it has the rectory out back, the church itself, and a, uh, uh, the cemetery. Now I'm going to pull a, uh, a stunt here. I'm going to ask somebody to give us a little background on the history of the church. Well, Fred, would you be interested in that? I, I can do it if you don't want to. I've, I've, I put CISO on the, on the hot pin at the United yeah. Church, too. So. Well, Wait a minute. Well, one of my... One of the, who are you talking to there, Farley? I'm talking to Fred Stenson, who... The Fred Stenson? The Fred Stenson. Oh, wow. Yes. Who uh, has historical connections with the area. And one of the questions I had, because I think Fred can tell the story much better than I can, I'd like to uh, learn a little bit more about the original carpenter here at the, at the church. Yeah, my sister's uh, Bree Gray Lois Johnston from just down the hill, and, and I, our, our maternal grandfather, um, Fred Plunker, was the um, was the carpenter on uh, on the church. Uh, I think they had already decided on the base size, and I think they brought in stones. But then when they needed, uh, and he was a, a, a carpenter by trade from Germany. And the story goes that the, the design of the church um, was kind of his vision of the church in, uh, in, in his hometown, which happened to be the hometown of several other people, like the, uh, uh, Schmidt, and uh, I wish my sister would pipe up here, wherever she is, but uh, there was, but definitely Ed Schmidt was from, or Ed Schmidt's father, sorry, was from uh, that same uh, village. So that was the design. Their Catholic church in that town uh, in Germany was the kind of the design for the church. But, uh, any yeah, Fred, there's more to the story. <laughs> tell, tell us what happened at the bell tower at top. Okay, well, the, the legend of this is that, that uh, they, they had it finished. They had the steeple done, and, uh, and then there was a question of how to get the, uh, the cross on top. And the uh, the story goes that it was a very windy Chinooky day, and uh, my grandfather decided he'd be the one to uh, to fix the cross on top. And so he he got it up there. And then he decided to pose on top of the uh, on the arms of the of the cross. He stood up on there, uh, and uh, and so many people have heard that story that they, there's this belief that 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 there's a photograph somewhere of that, and I honestly don't think there is. I think it's just the image of that, because he kind of got got a, caught in a gust of wind and almost fell off. And uh, um, but uh, which would have been sad for our Gene Pool had that happened. <laughs> but uh, that's the story anyway. <laughs> so we have an opportunity to tour through the cemetery, which is off to the right here, and. Uh, as in the Fishburn Cemetery, it's still actively used today. We also, I understand, Fred, are we allowed to tour through the church? Yes, yes. yes. Uh, uh, my sister asked that uh, maybe what we could do is, uh, oh no, I know what it is. She said, uh, there's no problem, just go in. When, when we, The church isn't actually open this summer. Uh, so after we're out, rather than you know sanitizing the whole place or whatever, we'll just close it up and you know any 
virus that happened to be in there would just die off. So, so don't worry about anything. It's been sanitized and it's clean now. And uh, just go ahead and, and have a look. Well, thank you. That's great. Yeah. Um, and Colleen and Francis here have uh, graciously provided us with lunch. And I understand the lunch bags are in the church someplace there. So we can. Uh, this is our lunch break as well. So. In addition to the tour, you can enjoy your, uh, your uh, lunch and you can find a, a favorite spot out here to, uh, to eat away in your munchies and things like that. So, so we're also around for questions. Patrick? And back in the early days, it was called Wood Mountain because it was heavily forested and a lot of the people around here gathered timber for their houses and corrals and, and fences and so forth. And one of the buildings at the museum, the Ward Cabin, owned uh, by Peter and Maud Ward, and they ranched down here on Wildwood Creek, and they got the, uh, the log for, for their house from, from Wood Mountain. So so that's it, ladies and gentlemen, for the uh, all-over-the-map tour. We thank Farley for doing all the hard work of putting together this tour and uh, arranging all of the uh, guest speakers and for all of the features to be available on this day. Thanks to Francis and Colleen Sear uh, for the lunch, as always. And uh, th thank you for some of the guest speakers. Uh, at St. Henry's, the uh, speaker you heard was one of uh, that area's most uh, celebrated uh, people, uh, Mr. Fred Stenson, who is a nationally known author, and uh, many of the books that uh, he has written over time, and the, the, the fiction books which are available at Kootenay Brown Pioneer Village for sale. Um, have been put together just due to his his diligence and his uh, his his growing up in the area and that feature. One of them, um, the books that I am thinking of right now, is called "Who by Fire," which talks about uh, rural people's relationships with the petroleum industry. And very very close to St. Henry's Church, you can look over the hill and see uh, some of the gas plants that are 
functioning probably over the last 50, 60 years. And uh, naturally, as I say, Fred uh, grew up in the area and knew, you know, the relationship of what, how uh, people felt uh, about being related to those, uh, those fossil fuel plants. So, and then uh, there was another uh, voice that was much fainter at the end, and that was Patrick Hochstein, who is a local farmer and a descendant of many of the uh, of, of pioneers and homesteaders of that area. Very proud and very vocal ways to, to that to, they have tried to keep St. Henry's open. And uh, I probably didn't do St. Henry's justice at the top of this. It is just a gorgeous sight at the top of a knoll, uh, one of the highest hills of that area before you get into the mountains. And of course, you can see the Rockies, Chief Mountain, Milk River Ridge, Spring Point, and, uh, and all of those features just incredibly uh, from that area. So it's just a, it's a postcard picture view and it's worth noting while we were there, all of the tourists who kept, uh, you know, coming in off of the highway and off of the secondary highway and up the gravel road up to the hill just to take in that view and just have a look at uh, what they could see from the, from the top of the hill. And that had nothing to do with our tour. There was, must have been probably four or five in the short time that we were there. So that's probably an everyday occurrence. And I have to say, the first time I ever climbed that hill um, was five years ago, and I felt the same way. It's uh, just one of the most picturesque places that you'll ever find in the province of Alberta or anywhere else. So, again, that's it for uh, All Over the Map. And thank you, listeners, for, for coming in and listening to this podcast and our other podcasts on Radio KBPV. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to Tales of Kootenay Brown Pioneer Village. This episode was researched and written by historians Farley Wood and Gord Tolton. This podcast is recorded and engineered by Gord Tolton. Episodes can be found at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Podbean, or any other podcatcher. Visit our website at www.kootenaybrown.ca. Kootenay is spelled K-O-O. T-E-N-A-I. Also, visit and join our pages on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for more information on our museum, or even better, visit us at 1037 Beverly McLaughlin Drive in beautiful Pincher Creek, Alberta.